Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. The album Ram came out in May 1971, the only album from Paul and Linda McCartney. It was number one in the UK. It gave us a number one single in the US, sold to platinum status in various territories, yet it somehow received a poor reception from the critics at the time, most pointedly from the other three Beatles. However, in the intervening 50 years, the critical tide has turned and it's now very much a beloved McCartney album, if not the best McCartney album. I mean, McCartney and McCartney album. McCartney and McCartney album. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's definitely the best album by Paul and Linda McCartney. I, definitely. I, definitely. And definitely the worst. <laughs> and, and the worst and all points in between. Yeah, I, I really like Ram. I think I think you and I are going to have lots to agree on. It's just going to make for a very dull episode. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's sometimes I think the most interesting question to ask people is what's your third favourite Paul McCartney album because everyone tends to go with Ram and Band on the Run as some yeah. version of one and two yeah. and you go yeah 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 where do you stand on album number three and that's where you can yeah. get into the weeds on it's pressed back play. to the egg oh no uh. okay. right well there you've done it again so we're back disagreeing but yes so today we're going to talk about Ram and it is a beloved album it is uh, hitting a 50th anniversary at the time that we uh, talk and what we're going to do is kind of talk about the album and how it's made itself, but also some of the events that were happening leading up to and around the time of its creation. Um, And we've talked about some of these things before, um, you know, but maybe let's have a quick overview and say, you know, Ram, the recording starts in the the, the latter end of 1970. So what else, what's happening in the run up to this? Yes. Was 1970 an important year in Beatles? I remember certain things happening. Some things happened in 1970. <laughs> I think I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's very uh, important to see Ram in the context of, of of what went on earlier in the year and also what was happening during the, the recording sessions itself. So obviously, um, you know, everyone knows April 1970, uh, the first album comes out. Uh, we talked about the circumstances of that album. The first McCartney out. album. Uh, yeah. The first McCartney album. Yeah. Um, you know that album does quite well, but uh, it, it it sort of is seen as the epicenter for the breakup. Whether that's true or not, you know we can do five or ten episodes on <laughs> on on that. But essentially, you've got that album coming out. The Beatles are still going in the sense that Let It Be is coming out. Let It Be gets three point seven million advance orders uh, yeah. for that album, uh, which is sort of the biggest advance orders I think uh, for for any Beatles album. So there there, there is all of this 
sort of the machinery is still uh, working and um yeah, there's uh, this very intense six week period where, yeah. you know, and it's it's obviously been written up in books where, you know, the whole thing is that Paul wants McCartney to come out before Let It Be. But there's this intense six weeks period where McCartney comes out, Let It Be comes out, the movie comes out for Let It Be, the single comes out in the background, uh, Sentimental Journey comes out, but nobody's yeah. really paying much attention to that. And, you know, anybody with any kind of coherent strategy would have said, guys, 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 just let's. Yes. Let's 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 take, let's take not dilute breath. the brand. Let's just yeah. spread this out and, and make hay while the sun shines. But even though, as you say, McCartney uh, sells a million copies, even though, as you say, Let It Be sells 3.7 million advanced copies. So um, literally he's selling a quarter of what the Beatles are selling yeah. that month, even though that's still a good sum of records being sold. Yep, yeah, and, and, and there is this endless speculation. Are they splitting up? Will they get back together? You know, even John is saying, well, you know, it might be a rebirth. It could be a death. We'll see what it is, but it'd probably be a rebirth. Hard to to sort of uh, entirely take all of these comments seriously because for all of the sort of integrity and the, you know, I want this and I want that and we've got to speak the truth and blah, blah, blah. Everybody has an eye on the bottom line. Mm. Uh, and Klein in particular is, is sort of, you know, uh, the Beatles will keep going. You know, nobody really knows what's happening there in the press. And there's just this endless uh, speculation. John and Yoko sort of absent themselves uh, and go off on their primal scream therapy. And if we remember prior to the McCartney album coming out, Paul has effectively disappeared from public view. Mm. So he's sort of almost been in hiding for a few months. He's not going to Apple meetings. He's not giving press interviews. And, And after McCartney comes out, that sort of happens again. So he he leaves the field and all of the PR and the publicity and the it's all uh, handed over to John and yeah. Yoko and George. And Everybody we, else is commenting, but he's not commenting on anything. He's just lying low again. And it's, yeah, and kind of in our last season, we did episodes on the McCartney album, the Plastic on a Band album and the All Things Must Pass album, the three big albums of 1970. And so yeah. McCartney comes out first. And in some ways, you know, it's like that maxim, you know, if you're in a negotiation, the first person to name their price can lose. Yeah. And Paul kind of names his price or shows his hand first with the McCartney album, um, which means that everything else can be seen as a reaction to that or as a filter to that. So, you know, he he's kind of plays his hand and then, he, as you say, he disappears. He's not really making his case for anything. No, I think I think that I, I I think that has repercussions that last certainly for the next couple of years because it lasts to this day almost. Yeah, yeah, he's he's just left the field clear for everybody else to put their interpretation uh, on what their spin on what's happened and what is happening around them. So the summer of nineteen seventy, John and Yoko are primal screaming, and that sort of you know eventually you know they're moving towards recording the Plastic Ono Band. Um, you know, Ringo is recording Boku of Blues in the summer of 1970, his second album of the year. And uh, there's a bit of the, 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 it, the it starts to get lit that uh, the paper starts to get lit for the lawsuits that are coming down the tracks. Yes. So in the, in the background, uh, uh, you know, the business dealings are still there. And the, without giving it to our lecture on <laughs> the legal issues, but Essentially, Paul wants to extract himself from the partnership that is the Beatles. So there's a legal um, sort of, well, a series of legal agreements which are keeping the four of them together. They've essentially agreed um, 
that all of their group and individual earnings will be funneled into Apple mm. and uh, then they each draw money out of that. And Paul is on record around this time or towards the end of the year saying, you know, I'm very happy to be in partnership with these guys as friends. Mm. Um, but in terms of creating music, in terms of the business, I, I, I just want them to give me my little bit in an envelope and I'll walk away from that. Yeah. Um, the difficulty is uh, there's just this absolute tangled web of legal agreements keeping them together. And so in the background, Paul's legal team um, are trying to work out how best to unstitch these uh, legal agreements in order that their client can walk away. Alan Klein is uh, running interference in the background. John and George have given their backing to Klein, but George in particular is sort of saying, oh, I don't see any reason why we can't get back together again and the Beatles will continue to keep working and it would be great and... Uh, uh, you know, each one is putting a different spin on it. But the bottom line here is the legal team, Paul's legal team, are trying to unpick this web of uh, legal agreement. And as the summer progresses, you know, George is working on All Things Must Pass and his, his mother uh, sadly dies in June 1970. Um, and, and But then towards the end of August, there's a really interesting letter published from Paul in Melody Maker, which for all the kind of niceties of, oh, maybe we will, maybe we won't, yeah. maybe there's a new phase Beatles album or whatever, yeah. there's a new, you know, we'll, we'll see what kind of rebirth happens. Paul, as if he hasn't done enough uh, in his press release from April saying, no, 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 yeah. puts this letter called the limping dog letter into the uh, <laughs> Melody Maker. Yeah. So this is this is at the end of August. And uh, you, you, you have a sense of it from this that, that Paul is fed up with the story, just where things are circling the drain. And mm. so he, he, he writes, in order to put out of its misery the limping dog of a news story, which has been dragging itself across your pages for the past year, my answer to the question, will the Beatles get together again, is no. Uh, so yes. he's drawing a line at that point. You know, we're not going to be recording again. The misery of the limping dog, a dog you could say that might have three legs. I see what you did there. See what I, did I see, there. What, see what Paul did there. See what, yeah, exactly. Well, that's obviously maybe how his mind is working at that point. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, that letter comes out at the end of August 1970. And it is at that point, 12 months have passed since the four of them have stood together in a room making yeah. music. And yeah. in the Beatle universe, obviously, a year is an eternity. You know? huge, yes. So they've had these, you know, seven years of recording and then to have like, so that's like, you know, 12.5% of the previous eight years has been spent apart. I don't know why I'm doing the maths on that. It's yeah. all gone a bit kind of um, So then in September, John is doing the Plasticona band sessions. We don't really know, I guess, uh, what Paul might have known about what the others were doing at the time. Did he know John was recording an album in September? Did he know All Things Must Pass was coming down the pipe? You kind of think that some Apple meetings might have flagged these potential projects, but then he wasn't really engaging. He's, he's not really engaging, but but these these sessions are being talked about in the, in the press, in the music press. Um, yeah. You know, so Rolling Stone had, had run an article saying, you know, John Lennon has 20 songs ready to go. Uh, he's going to be recording an album. So uh, you, you do get a sense through the, throughout this period that Paul is reading the music press you know he's mm -hmm. he's that's where he's getting his information from um i don't know how much contact he still has with the apple insiders you know apple has effectively been gutted by klein yeah so 
all of the people that that used to work there that that uh, you know you had Paul's people, John's people, etc. Um, I, I get a sense that Paul is mostly getting his information from the uh, the music press and and presumably from his legal team as well. Um, so this leads to October 1970, and, and this is when RAM starts to, to come into existence. And obviously, Paul's been kind of lying low, as we say, for the summer, and he, he's amassing songs, he's writing, I'm guessing he's on the farm, he's enjoying his family life to some degree and thinking about his legal options. Uh, but in terms of getting back to work, it's uh, the recording sessions start in October 1970, and the recording of RAM kind of happens in chunks, doesn't it? It does. Uh, so they, they, Paul and Linda sail in a very leisurely fashion. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot the of that in the 70s. Bowie yeah. used to sail to New York all the time as well. And yeah. Why not, I suppose? Well, we can check the petty cash. Can we do that? Can we? <laughs> well, no. Even if we could, we couldn't. We couldn't. Um, so, yes. Uh, and the thing, the thing to bear in mind is he goes into these sessions with a phenomenal number of songs and demos. So as you say, mm. he's been, for all that he's been lying low, you know, there, there does seem to be this sort of uh, outpouring of uh, songs and a lot of it is new stuff, uh, but one or two date back to the get back sessions but um he's clearly decided uh almost as a reaction to the mccartney album perhaps uh, and the criticisms there about its sort of homespun charm uh is he's going to go to new york he's going to recruit some session men and this is going to be a proper fully blown solo album yeah and, and as we'll see you know some of these songs obviously are for ram some of them end up in red Rose speedway some of them end up in various different places including on a flaming pie in 1997 so there's a long tail to all of the work that that happens and there's there's three main batches of sessions there's the the core sessions in new york in october november 70 there's some sessions in new york in january 71 and then you know the album gets finished in la so we're going to pick those apart as we go forward but this happens either side of christmas new year's 1970 and it's important to keep that in mind because of what eventually comes down the tracks yes the timeline here you you, you've got sort of two parallel timelines you've got what's happening in new york when he's recording and what what's happening back in london with the legal Um, folks with the legal folks you know that's the really important stuff is uh is what's happening in court that's always more interesting than music you know (laughs) When you think about Ram, it's uh, it's very curious that this is an album that's made entirely in the USA. It doesn't it doesn't strike you as a very American album when you think about you know the type of music that was being made at that time, particularly the music that you know John goes off to make. You think of you know American session, you know kind of that dense kind of studio sound, whereas Ram sells itself you know particularly from its cover. You think, oh, this is this is a bit of a laid back, you know, it's got rustic country, heart of the country vibes, but this is recorded in New York City in the in the thick of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is that real sort of uh, uh, slightly split personality to the album because, you, you know, on the face of it, looking at the cover, looking at the song titles, it, it looks as if you're going to get more of the same of McCartney, this kind mm. of home homespun charm. Um, but it, it's a very odd mix because you, you've got some, sort of fairly basic tracks being put down in in New York and then there'll be more overdubs and it gradually gets more sophisticated but it's 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 a very unique sound in that respect you know so you have sort of some down home playing but then you have the New York Philharmonic is on there as well you know it's 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 very interesting that that that's what uh, for me is is a lot of its appeal 
Yeah, the presentation of the album uh, kind of, uh, you know, blindsides you a little bit as to the amount of work that's going into it. It doesn't sound like a US uh, recorded early 70s session musician album, which... No, it doesn't, doesn't sound, does not sound like Steely Dan. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with sounding no, like Steely no, no, Dan. No, 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 definitely all. not. Um, so as you say, you know, there are parts of Ram that are going in the opposite direction to the preceding McCartney album. And Paul has to face for the first time finding other musicians to work with. You know, he's shown on McCartney that he can just do it all himself, but he does thrive in an environment where he can work with other people. And also because he's a, you know, we, we know from, you know, his whole career that he works fast. He, if he has somebody else in the room, he can work even faster. Yeah. Uh, And so he goes about the the process of uh, recruiting musicians. And we also need to see this in the, in the light of recruiting musicians. This is the first version of Wings in a way where he's trying to figure out, you know, can he bring people around him to work? Uh, And who is the first person who eventually answers the call? Um, Well, the, 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 Sort of the third musician uh, who is present throughout all of these sessions is uh, Denny Sywell, yeah, um, uh, who is the drummer, and uh, you, you know it's it's difficult to sort of understate his contribution here because most of these tracks are going to be recorded uh, with Paul Denny Sywell and then uh, another guitar player with two two main guitar players come and go on these sessions, but Sywell is there across the entire. Uh, the the entire album, yeah, and and Denny, you know, holds the the Denny Sywell holds the kind of the 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 name of being the first musician that works with Paul post Beatles. You know, yes. I know Linda works with him too, but you know, we're saying folks that he's the first person who gets pulled into the Paul orbit post Beatles. And I think the notion was originally that Paul was going to maybe recruit, you know, a you know, a battery of people and just pick and choose who he needed for each individual track. But Denny kind of rocks in and just locks himself into the job, doesn't go anywhere. Yes, that seems to be it. I mean, he he seems to have arrived in New York with the idea that he's going to take his pick of sort of the top New York session men. And he's maybe going to have a, a sort of rotating cast of people coming and going across these sessions. But as you say, the first the first person is recruited Denny Sywell. He works with him for about a week. And then he just says, right, well, we're not going to bother with the other two drummers I, I, I had thought we might use. Um, and again, it's this idea that, you know, you've got to be good to work with Paul, but you've also got to have that rapport. You've got to have that personal connection. And it's very clear uh, from the beginning that, that he and Danny Sywell and Linda and Danny Sywell just hit it off. Yeah, and you know, we we managed to speak to Denny about this directly ourselves, which is in our separate podcast. But he describes how, you know, he he goes to an audition not knowing uh, who he's auditioning for, and then immediately, you know, puts says, "Well, you're Paul McCartney because <laughs> you look yeah. like him, and you are him." Yeah, and the being a seasoned session pro, he's not phased by that. You know, I think this is this is the thing you you've got to remember. It it is that sort of coterie of of New York session guys. So Danny Sywell has worked with uh, you know um, Astrid Gilberto. He's played with James Brown. He's just off the back of I think a, a Billy Joel uh, session. You know he he's he's used to just turning up, doing a day's work, doing a couple of days work, and leaving, and uh, is really not overawed. Um, so he describes. Uh, you know, going to this audition and not knowing who he was auditioning for. Yeah. Um, he he uh, talks about a friend. There were ads in music 
papers but um, it was actually a friend of his said gave him a heads up and said oh there's an audition you should go to this and he turns up in this pretty dingy basement in the, Bron- in the Bronx I think um, and there's a drum kit and uh, it's Paul and Linda are, and, away are they go. and away they go and it wasn't even a sort of a jam session with Paul Paul just kind of stood and watched and said you know play some drums and yeah. um, Sywell says you know he just went straight into his Ringo impression <laughs> um, and, and was trying to kind of mimic that and that, that same kind of fill. And again, as a session player, that's what you're used to. You, you know, I want you to play like this or I want you to play like that or can you give me some Ringo Starr fills or whatever? And he can just do that. Um, and he just hits hits it off. Uh, and this is totally fortuitous because we need to remind ourselves that Denny you know, eventually morphs into the first drummer for Wings and stays working with Paul yeah. from this point in October 1970 up until 1973, till just before the, the Band on the Run uh, recording sessions. And uh, as I said, he, he, he talks to us all about that in our separate episode. But, you know, this is a very, for, and, and Paul obviously being, uh, you know, forged in the, the realm of happy accidents is like, this is the guy, let's yeah. get on with it. And Denny seems quite charmed by the whole situation. I think the next person who comes in is not quite as charmed by the whole situation and isn't really buying it. And that's David Spinoza. David Spinoza. Yeah. And what again, was his problem, Stephen? Why what was, he? Hey, well, again, he's a, he's a, he, he's another top New York uh, session player. Um, and he, he, he has a very different take on the whole yeah. Uh, sessions because one of the things that Danny Sywell says is, you know, Paul never told me what to play. He just absolutely gave me the freedom, you know, to come up with, you, you know, my part in the song. Spinoza um, is sort of saying, well, one, he turns up. Linda has called him pretending to be Paul McCartney's <laughs> secretary, as yeah. you would. Um, so he comes along. Spinoza is not impressed. Uh, he's jamming with Paul. And what he says is, you know, I'm meeting Paul McCartney and he played this basic rock and roll, this kind of ching, ching, ching. It was very embarrassing. Uh, Paul had to sing every note or hit it on his guitar. He couldn't even name what the chord was. Um, he, he used to call it this particular chord, the pretty chord. Uh, and what he says is the whole album was done in the same format as the McCartney album, only we played the parts for him. There was no freedom. We were told exactly what to play. Yeah. Um, so very different experience. And you wonder, is that just because Paul is more confident as a guitar player than a drummer? He can hear, you know, we talked before about Paul hears records, you know, he, he, he yeah. can hear the whole arrangement in his head. Um, so here he's got a top guitar player and he just says, right, I want you to play this or I want you to play that. Um, and also this idea that as a session player, you've got to be able to read music. You've got to be able to uh, sort of follow charts. Paul doesn't have any of that. Yeah. So there's that basic vocabulary. They're not speaking the same language um, in, in the studio. And it just doesn't suit Spinoza, really, that he no. Paul expects him to kind of be on call for the next block of weeks and to not do any more sessions or make any more money. And he just really is, Spinoza seems to be just all about the work. Uh, yes, uh, all about all about the work and all about the money. So you, I mean, you forget these these session guys are working very lucrative uh, uh, gigs. Yeah. Um, Paul is coming along and saying, "Right, I want you from nine in the morning until six in the evening." And uh, you know, Denny Sywell mentions that they would all turn up at nine, and Paul would turn up at ten or half ten, um, but they all had to be there from nine. So there's that aspect of it. Plus, you know, they can kind of go into a studio for an hour, record a jingle, make some cash. So what happens is Spinoza realizes that things start to wind down 
sort of at three or four in the afternoon. So he starts booking other yeah. gigs. Um, and uh, one day, you know, the four o'clock date, he's got the clock is ticking and he says to Paul, do you mind if I go? And according to Danny Sywell, Paul just thought, right, well, that's not what we agreed. So suddenly um, Spinoza is out and another guitar player, Hugh McCracken, is in. Yeah, Paul doesn't want the friction of having to deal with any of that. So he just no. uh, just, did, just hands him off. Did, I have to say, did, did not do Spinoza's career any harm at all. Well, he goes off and works with some other well-known people, such as John Lennon and Ringo Starr. And Yoko. And yeah, Yoko, he was Yoko's yeah. band leader for a while. But uh, yeah, so he, uh, and again, I think we've talked about this, where Spinoza's quite nervous working with uh, John. This is around the mind games period yeah. uh, because he knows John and Paul, all that very public friction. And, uh, you know, he, he eventually tells Lennon and uh, thinking, you know, this, this, this might be a problem. And uh, John says, Paul knows how to pick good people. Yeah, he's, um, he's happy about that. And all is well. All is well. I think we talked about that in our 1974 episode, so go and check that out. Um, and he also appears on Ringo the Fourth, uh, Ringo's 1977 album, which is a, a, a highlight. But Classic. the man who the man who does uh, last longer on guitar is Hugh McCracken, who was originally, I think, wanted before uh, Spinoza, but he was uh, he was otherwise busy down in Florida working with uh, Aretha Franklin. So yeah, so as you do, you know that can happen, can't it? So once Spinoza leaves, uh, Linda kind of taps uh, Hugh McCracken again. It, I, I'm 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 very uh, amused by this notion that Linda's doing the phone calls and is She's kind of the running the yeah, it's, it's getting all the thankless jobs, you know. Well, this 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 comes out a couple of times where. Um... Uh, in, in that early series, you know, Paul Paul doesn't really like friction. Linda's a, you know, New York City girl, and uh, she doesn't mind uh, taking on the the dirty job sometimes. You know, so if somebody has to be spoken to. Paul <laughs> to delegate that to her. But she also has a. She also Linda. People who you see talking about her says she was a very you know inclusive person who was able to yep. bring people along, which is yep. a very good yep. skill to have. Um. Other people, uh, so we've got Hugh McCracken on guitar and other people involved in the session are, and it's hard to believe these names aren't made up, but <clears throat> Dixon Van Winkle and Eric Wangberg. You, you know, these are straight out of central casting uh, names. Yeah, they? and Eric is also known as Eric the Norwegian, who gets a lot of credit for uh, uh, mixing and the general sound and the engineer, of the, the record. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, 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 he does, he does. And um, somebody, uh, Dixon Van Winkle, and you see that name appear, on, on some of the mixes on the RAM archive box. Yeah, 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 you do, yeah. Which I, because I always thought that was just a made up name or yeah, something. Like a Thrillington type name. Like a Thrillington type name. Yeah. But um, it, uh, after they, they did the sort of Studio B Columbia work, they moved to Phil Ramone's um, studio. Yeah. And uh, Dixon Van Winkle was a, a setup guy there who sort of could, could deal with the orchestrations and that type of thing. So. Uh, so he's involved. He's involved. And aren't we forgetting somebody very important in this band makeup? We are. Linda. Linda. The uh, This is an album by Paul and Linda McCartney. And, uh, you know, Linda is very much involved in these sessions. So it's not just a question of getting Hugh McCracken on the phone. Um, she's, you know, a creative foil and uh, co-writer on uh, a chunk of the tracks on the album. And, you know, Linda, you know, casts a... A, a huge shadow on all of Paul's life and we haven't really talked about her much on the show um but you know she's had a she's had a, a, a an interesting track track to get to a recording studio with Paul McCartney in October 1970 
Yes, I mean her 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 background. You, you know, nothing in the background would point to, her, to to sort of you know her career progression has gone to to lead to um, being in a recording studio playing keyboards. Or, um, I mean, essentially on this album, I think her contribution is largely in terms of um, sort of vocal harmonies, and there's mm. a, there's a, there's a a little bit of uh, lead vocal. But uh, she, she it's it is again hard to overstate the impact she is having on Paul's life and Paul's career at, at this point in terms of, um, you know, we, we, we talked about this idea or hopefully bunked the idea that, you know, the McCartney album was recorded at a time when Paul was depressed. And, yeah, yeah. You, you know, uh, you know, this, I think, is the period. It's, it's the post-release of the McCartney album. It's post-April, May 1970. That I think the depression is there, that the, yeah. the, the the stress, and the person who's with him throughout all of this uh, is Linda. Yeah, um, she, she has a she had there, there is a Linda McCartney website and uh, the sort of interesting little bio that they have of her there. Um, but you sort of get her background and you 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 realize you know um, although she comes from a pretty well healed family, you know she she's had a rough life in some senses and she she is a kind of uh, tough personality. Yeah. Well, in October 1970, Linda McCartney is 29 years of age. Um, you know, she, as you say, she was born in New York. Her father, uh, you know, Leopold Weil Epstein, interestingly enough, an Epstein, yep. was born in uh, 1910 to Russian Jewish immigrants and uh, his parents were Louis and Stella Epstein, so that's where the name Stella the comes name, from. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he changed his name uh, due to anti-Semitism reasons to Lee Eastman, and Lee Eastman is playing a huge role yes. uh, in Paul's affairs at this point in time. Uh, Linda uh, does go off and does some training in photography at the University of Arizona, and you know the legend goes that while she's working at Town and Country magazine, she uses an unwanted invitation to a Rolling Stones party. Uh, on the Hudson River to photograph the band. And when you look at the story, it or her her success in the realm of photography and happens actually quite quickly. It's 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 one of those cl- classic 60s stories about just being in the right place yeah. at, at the right time. Um, and, and even this idea, you, you know, uh, supposedly she took two lessons, uh, you know, two photography lessons. Yeah. Um, she's studying to be an art an art major, is her, her uh, art history is her uh, subject, um, takes a couple of photography lessons and she parlays this into um, uh, an incredibly successful uh, career. And it is, I think, uh, largely overlooked just how successful she was mm. as, a, as a photographer, particularly as a sort of rock uh, photographer. So she starts off photographing the Rolling Stones. And if you look at any of the books that she's published, any of her work, you can see she was just present at so many key points. Um, yeah. You know, we, we can talk about the, you know, she was there at the Sgt. Pepper launch party, um, but uh, she photographed Eric Clapton in 1968. It makes the front cover of Rolling Stones, the first female photographer to, to have a photograph on the cover of Rolling Stones. So she's incredibly successful. Uh, you know, there's a lot of disparaging comments come later about, oh, it's because she's Mrs. McCartney, et cetera, et cetera. But, but she was already forging a career uh, in photography before she ever met Paul. 
Yeah, she's taking great pictures of the Beatles back in May 67. And that's when she first kind of enters Paul's universe. But it's really about another, you know, 15 or 18 months before she uh, becomes his other half uh, towards the, the end of 1968. Um, but yeah, as you say, she has pictures on the cover of Rolling Stone. She has, you know, she's taking pictures for Jimi Hendrix albums and all the rest. And um, you kind of have to imagine sometimes when we look at that old footage of the Beatles, you know, the the, the kind of the reporters and all those press uh, conferences that they do it's all very stilted like i say you know well, what yeah. do you think about such a thing and all the rest and then you kind of have this glamorous american uh you know i guess she had a socialite kind of thing about her which is kind of you know finagling her way into these situations she must have stood out taking these great photos getting people's attention exactly and then suddenly they they have an in-house photographer yeah so uh you know from from sort of 68 on a lot of those iconic uh, iconic photo- photographs that you have for the Beatles are Linda McCartney photograph. Yeah, if you look at the Beatles box sets that have come out in the last few years, every photo that happens yeah. to be a Linda one has a big Linda credit in the yeah. corner, yeah. which is obviously one of Paul's um, stipulations for using them in in the Beatles uh, box sets. But yeah, as we spoke, you know, she took she was there for the the ballad of John and Yoko picture. You know, she's taken those great pictures of the Beatles getting ready to cross at Abbey Road, which nobody else would have thought about. Uh, we've a lot to, and, you know, all the Paul McCartney reissues are full of fantastic Linda photos. So we're very lucky that she was documenting all of these things. But then uh, as yeah. Miss, Mrs. McCartney, you, you've, you've got to learn how to play the piano. Well, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's one quote here, which uh, comes from Paul in 1981, which is, uh, Paul says, Linda, as a musician, is easy. Easy because she'll do what you want and she's not much of a creator. That's that's very That's nice. lovely. That's <laughs> lovely. That's I, a lo- lovely I, thing to say. <laughs> very, very touching. Thanks, Paul. Um, but, you well, know, it's a thankless yeah. task, a thankless position she's in. It is. And I mean, she 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 uh, she got a lot of criticism over the years, but uh, she she is quite open about it on on the website uh, that I talked about. um, She says after receiving credits on Paul's solo album, Ram. So so even her own website is acknowledging, you know, this is a Paul solo album. And um, she says, you know, yeah, there was a lot. Of, of things saying said about me that were true. I did sing out of tune. I couldn't yeah. play the piano. Um, you, you, you know, there's a great story that her piano teacher gave up. Uh, you know, she was sent, Paul said, oh, go and take some lessons. And the teacher just, uh, who lived in Cavendish Avenue, sort of across the road, um, said, I can't teach you anything. You don't even know you're left from right. Um, <laughs> but but so, so particularly during the RAM sessions, I think, her contribution here is is she's obviously helping him as a foil, as a kind of sounding board for uh, writing songs and lyrics and things like that. But she's just there being supportive and that's her role. And she accepts that role. And she rather reluctantly goes on the road with the band eventually mm. with Wings because she knows Paul needs her there. Um, you know, and I think the other musicians in the band accept that, that that's what she brings uh, to the situation. And you, you think back to that time, 1771, you know, Yoko and Linda are getting an awful lot of opprobrium and in the press and elsewhere, and even from, you know, well-minded fans, but saying, you know, they are the reason that the Beatles broke up, that, you know, yeah. it is their fault. And if you put Yoko and Linda side by side for a second, I think Linda probably even had it worse because I, I think people felt, well, Yoko, we just don't understand this situation yeah. here. And okay, it's 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 avant-garde and it's open inverted commas weird. And John is just kind of you know 
will do what he wants and he'll plug into the weird. And that's kind of the, the vibe that John was at at the minute. With Linda, I think she had it harder because people, you know, Linda wasn't labeling herself as an artist, which gave you a scope to to yeah. perceive Yoko in. I think Linda had it harder because people just felt you shouldn't be there. You're not as musically talented as your husband. Get out of town. And that they were missing the point. I, th- I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And the other the other thing is, you know, uh, John wasn't touring. Um Yoko uh, was up after sort of sometime in New York City. She's doing her own albums. So in a sense, uh, Yoko is seen as a replacement by the fans for Cynthia. Mm. But Linda is seen as a replacement for John. Or uh, as a replacement and, for them. Yeah. For well, the fans themselves. Yes, that, 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 that too. Um, so that that's, you know, she's absolutely... Never, never going to get out from under that. Uh, and I mean, in one sense, she never, she never really does. Yes, yeah. It's, uh, so it's it's tough being Linda, but she does. Uh, you know, she she could have taken a route where she's like, listen, I'm going to be the backstage photographer for the next decade, and you know, you'll have some great photos, and I'll be there all the time. But she she took a slightly more difficult road, and you know, when Ram does come out, you know, that sound that she brings, those, that kind of slightly, and it is a slightly off-kilter harmony, but it's a very pleasing sound. And it actually becomes a very distinctive sound as Wings evolves over the next decade. That's that's one of the things you could say about this album, that this is, you can absolutely hear the foundation of that Wings vocal sound. And it may not be technically perfect it may not be a sort of pure sound but it's incredibly engaging and very distinctive and um you know you know people talk about i, re- I was reading uh, an interview with uh, pete townsend and he he was talking you know very favorably about the, the vocal sound that the that, that wings had and you know townsend is not someone that uh, lavishes praise on other people no. <laughs> um you know very readily and he he really leapt to linda's defense um, in terms of that vocal arrangement, that vocal sound. And it it starts here. It starts on Ram. Yes. Even to to go back to Dixon Van Winkle, if if he does exist, he says the interplay between Paul and Linda was sweet when they were on mic. Linda came up with some parts on her own, like the backing vocals from Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. That consisted of the two of them. But when she needed a hand, Paul was great with her. So, you know, the team is all ready to go. And all they have to do now is record and make Ram. And we're going to talk about that after this break. End of part one. Intermission. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. 
Welcome back. So it's October 1970. Uh, Paul has got a crew together to make the Ram album. He's recording in Columbia Studio B in New York City, which is a famous uh, studio. Uh, albums like Bridge Over Troubled Water have been made there. And, um, you know, work continues there and also at Phil Ramone's A&R Recording Studios. And just as a reminder, this, you know, if October 1970, what's going on in Beatleland, Stephen? Oh, well, uh, the, the most important thing that's happening is that um, Ringo is back on the Cilla Black show. Yeah, that's uh, important. <laughs> that's very important. He, he always, he seems to, he seems to constantly be going on to the Cilla Black show. Um, but he, he has recorded uh, that the Bukus of Blues album in yeah. two days. That's the way to record an album. And uh, he's about to release a single. John is uh, recording Plastic Owner Band. He yep. is turning 30. Um, and we talked about uh, his thirtieth birthday and uh, his dad uh, turning up and his dad it's Johnny's birthday. It's and Johnny's all birthday. Uh, yeah. Janis Joplin uh, okay. sending a posthumous uh, message. Um, George is uh, finishing up and mixing all things must pass. So, so th- there's sort of two big albums uh, in, in in progress. Um, Ringo is still there. He's got a you know. On, on UK TV, so there's a, there's a profile there. Meanwhile, Paul is squirreled away in in New York, uh, recording his next masterpiece. Yeah, so we sometimes think because Ram comes out after Plastic Ona Band and All Things Must Pass that they were recorded after them, but they're not. And so, so keep that in mind. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through the songs roughly in the uh, order that we think they are recorded and. You know, something we've talked about once or twice before is how the Beatles, when they were working, they rarely had a surplus of songs, except maybe when they came back from India. And, uh, you know, they were kind of recording with whatever was floating to the top of the song tank at that time. Paul arrives and he's got a ton of songs. And he he, he obviously has spent that summer not just writing songs, but what we'll see is there are certain songs, like little fragments that go back to January 69, Get Back, Let It Be time, where he's formulating all of these things into proper songs. He's got a big bucket of about 29 songs yes so, so i mean if, if you think we had, we had we had 30 songs on the white album so when they came back from india they had around 30 30 song songs he he go, goes into these sessions with 29 songs and demos uh that he's going to work on and there's a lot is recorded here as well that doesn't yeah. make that doesn't make the album that that will turn up these sessions will the actual recordings from these sessions will turn up on subsequent uh wings album and what is worth remembering is that these are all recorded quickly as basic uh, sessions. So Paul is either on a guitar or a piano. Yeah. Um, Denny Sywell is on a set of drums. Uh, one of the guitarists is there, either um, uh, uh, Spinoza or McCracken, uh, playing a, a guitar as well. Paul, uh, as Denny Sywell says, was never playing bass with him while he was playing drums. No, that was that was that was a fascinating thing to think that you know at no point. You think you know bass and drums. That's your kind of classic rhythm section. You 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 lock, you lock that in, and yeah. that's you would think that would be what you would do first. Then you would build your song on top of that. And I just think this is this goes all the way back to Sgt. Pepper when Paul was, uh, you know, maybe doing a basic track on bass and then wiping it and putting something very creative over the top of it. And I just thought that was a fascinating to think that when these sessions end, um, you, you know what Paul is left with are these very basic 
uh, takes that he's then going to embellish with the orchestrations and, and vocal. And it is nice to think that there's a basic takes version of Ram out there somewhere, you know. If only and they'd released a box if set. If only they'd released a, yeah, <laughs> if only they'd released a box set, that would be great. Uh, we think Monkberry Moon Delight might have been the thing that was done as a first pass just to get everybody warmed up, even though that's not the version that ended up on the album. Um, yes, there's, there's that, that uh, Luca Peresi book, uh, which is a very detailed run through all the sessions. And, and he references the fact that the, this was the song that was used to get the sound in the room, that uh, it was Paul on piano and uh, Danny Sywell. Mm. Um, but uh, it, it does seem to have been completely remade. Spinoza, for example, is very adamant that it's not him on guitar, so it must have been McCracken, so it must have been done later in the beginning of November when McCracken came in. Um, but yeah, this is a Monkberry Moon Delight. This is, I have to say, this is one of my favourite songs. I have no idea what it's about, but it's a fantastic song. <laughs> is it about, uh, is it a, uh, every one of these songs you have to put through the filter of, is it about the Beatles breaking up? Yeah. I is it about it, the Beatles breaking up? I think it is. <laughs> okay. I think it is about the Beatles breaking up. I, 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 it, it's it is really tempting at almost compulsory to be play amateur psychologist at this point, but it does seem to me that it's such a ferocious kind of uh, vocal take, and the lyrics seem to be nonsensical. But if you start breaking them down and looking at them, they, they, you know it could be about somebody having a breakdown. It could be somebody under pressure. Mm. It's Paul's version of Primal Scream, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a couple of scream and rocking out moments that he has yeah, yeah. on these recording sessions. Hey, this is this is this is a song I wish he would do live. Yeah, can he can he still hit the that amount of screaming though? Wow. It's, it's hard to know. Um, the the first proper big track that they do record is Another Day, which everyone should yes. know from being the first solo Paul McCartney single, which will come out in February seventy one. And this is what Denny Sywell remembers as the first song they recorded, and Another Day is credited as a Paul and Linda McCartney co-write. Yes, um, of that course. causes yeah. But which <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem cynical. You seem to find that hard to believe. Um it does there is some charming sound footage of Paul playing some of the elements of this song in January 69 during the get back sessions. Yes, so it goes all the way back. It, it, it goes all the way back uh to January 69. So this is this is a song or a fragment of a song that's been kicking around since then. Um no, no. I mean, I, I, I can certainly see that uh, Linda could have had input into the lyrics and, uh, and the so sad sections, and, and the all so that kind sad of stuff sections, and her... certainly the harmonies and, yeah. and and things like that. Um, you know, in in any other context, particularly in a Beatles context, you know that that wouldn't get you a writing credit uh, on a Lennon McCartney well, song. It would get you know Lennon got writing credits for less on McCartney songs during the Lennon yeah, McCartney but years. But George didn't get any credit for more on certain <laughs> Lennon McCartney know, songs. So, um, but the, but this this credit is particularly contentious because this leads to problems. It it does. So this is what, again, if we think about the what's going on at this time and uh it's um part of the, the, the we've had disputes with northern songs um uh basically paul and uh john have a contract if they write songs then the 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 uh, copyright goes to northern songs and the, the income goes to northern songs um and paul gets then you know a payout from northern songs but if he writes with someone else then 50 percent of the copyright and 50% of the royalties will go straight into that other person's pocket. So if you write this song with your wife, Linda's going to get 50%. Yeah. Um, and at, at this time, you know, Paul has said in interviews, you know, we didn't have any money. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, at this stage, we're living on money that uh, um, uh, Linda had had got saved up up from her uh, photography career so whilst he has on paper he's got money he he hasn't got cash and uh so this is one way around this um so if if the the cynical lawyer in me would say that that was you know quite handy to have six or seven songs written by your wife and 50 percent of the uh the the, the publishing um going but this this then becomes a dispute atv sue um that's eventually settled and Lou Grade gets the James Paul McCartney TV special, which do you, yeah. want, to talk, do you want to talk about that for <laughs> Yeah, well I'll talk about that for an hour. No, it's 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 it seems kind of quaint that it's like, oh, just record me a TV special and I'll make some money off that. It's like, was that really the payoff you wanted? That- it- it seems to explain why Beatles songs reappear in the James Paul McCartney special for the first it, time in Paul's solo career. Yes, it does. Uh, well, what, what what you've got to remember is Lou Grade, ATV, it's TV. So yes, that's he, true. He's, he's, he has he's a whole gonna, network. Yeah, He's a whole network and he's going to get 100% uh, presumably of the profits of a TV special. Yes. So if Paul does this, uh, you know, little did he know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but, and again, in, if you think about it, John is doing the same thing. So yes. there are co-writes with Yoko and, uh, you know, he'll have the same problems. I think we touched on one of the Christmas episodes about Happy Christmas War is over. There's an issue there with the, the, the credits. Um, so it's a nice device. Uh, to It's a financial device. Yeah, so the fact that it's recorded early on in the sessions, maybe Paul had notions that another day would be a, a single or a standalone single. It doesn't end up on the Ram album. And it kind of feels... It doesn't feel like it has the complete sound of the Ram album either. In the, uh, it, it, no, to me, it sounds completely different. Mm. Uh, it, it sounds completely different. You, it, it's it's Ram has a kind of rougher quality or a kind of sandpapery sound to it, if that yeah. makes sense. This this is a very smooth um, production, uh, a, a very kind of sophisticated sound. Given that uh, it's it's Paul, it's three people basically. Um, yeah, another day is a great song. I, th- I, I think when I first heard it as a kid, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't totally appreciate the, the ennui that is happening through the song, the kind of the desperateness. I thought, why is he just singing a song about a woman washing her hair? And then, yeah. you know, after a few years, you kind of go, oh, I get it now. There are there are some great lines, you know, in the office where the paper grows. You know, it, it's it's yeah. um, and it is that Den- Denny Sywell uh, re- recalls sort of hearing it for the first time uh, with with Spinoza and kind of going, okay, yeah. You yep. can kind of hear where this is going. It's got a weird little kind of uh, time signature thing where it drops. It's not quite three four, but it drops from four four into a sort of odd uh, time signature. Um, and then the lyric and Danny Sywell uh, called it Eleanor Rigby in New York City. Yeah, it has that vibe. Although he didn't, he when we put that to him, he didn't remember saying <laughs> no, he that. Didn't, but, uh, but, but he took credit all the same. Which <laughs> yeah, I he took credit all the yeah. Um, let's browse through a few more songs. Uh, the next track that he records is uh, called "A Dog Is Here," which is actually the original title of Three Legs." Let's put it through the. Is it about the Beatles filter? Is it about yes. the Beatles? Yes, I think. I think it yes, probably it does think it do, particularly as that letter in the Melody Maker would, would make you think that this I, is what was on I, his mind. I, Yes, I mean, it seems to me that I, I, you could see him writing that letter. Let's yeah. put this limping dog of a story, and then suddenly thinking, "Oh, limping dog," and uh, he 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 writes the song. So I, I would be prepared to bet uh, all of your nothing is real salary uh, <laughs> on the fact on the fact that uh, uh, three legs and the melody maker letter were written on the same day. 
Yeah, that would make sense. If we ever speak to Paul, we can ask him that. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it, but obviously, Three Legs is a great song. Um, next up, he on the same day records uh, "Eat at Home," which is not about the Beatles. What is it about? I, I think it's about uh, home cookery. It's about home cookery. Yeah, yeah. Julia well, Smith. I don't know. In in nineteen, <laughs> it's so right. Okay, in it's the same day. It's the same day as as as. Uh, Three legs. So he's he's uh, Paul called this song in 1975 obscene. Oh so I think God. we can say this 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 song is uh, well. Obscene. Let's say it was it was obscene. Uh, it was a single in Europe. It got to number 15 in Italy, and you think, well, of course it did. It's about sex and sleeping and eating. What? Oh gosh, my goodness! Go, Cover go, your ears, children. Go go and listen to it again. But again, the the, the idea here is they're 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 just going to do a song a day. Yeah, uh, and here they managed to get you know two two songs pretty much done on the same the same time. Uh, next track up, track up is "Get on the Right Thing," which of course doesn't appear in Ram. Eventually appears on Red Rose Speedway. And when yeah. you listen to "Get on the Right Thing," with the knowledge that it's from these sessions, you're like, "Yeah, that is definitely could have gone straight onto Ram." Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, it, I, it, it's it's one of the songs on Red Rose Speedway that I. I know you're a big fan, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, of the I double really, retros, of the double retros, I do like this song a lot. And yes, it's absolutely ram, ram, tastic fingerprints, ram, tastic ram, hoof prints. Um, <laughs> uh, but the next track that's recorded is mighty, and it's the backseat of my car. Uh, yes, the, the, uh, the song that eventually closes the album, and again, a song where we have some fragments back in January '69 of him. Uh, you know, sitting at a piano when he'd start his get it, get back, let it be day, yeah. where he'd just noodle at the piano and whatever fragments were, were in his head. So we do have some, you know, we can we can think about what happens if he had stopped at that point and turned it into a fully fledged Beatles song. There's certainly B-side Abbey Road DNA in this song. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's got Abbey Road uh, DNA yeah. running through it. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this is just a fantastic song. And it, it it's again... You could tour three songs on this album, which are little kind of mini suites mm. that the, the songs have sections. It's not just verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, verse, it, outro. It's it's they're sort of stitched together. And this is one of the this is one of the most successful. And it's the last song on the album. It couldn't really go anywhere else, you know, because it sort of builds to this this through this crescendo. Um, it's very arranged, yeah, but at the same time, it's a very kind of rough. And, and ready uh, aspect to it as well. And that's what I like about this album. It's, it's that combination of these big kind of lush choral arrangements, uh, these, these orchestral arrangements overlaid on top of what, what seem to be sort of fairly basic takes. Like the outro section is just a jam. Yeah. You know? It's, you know, you know, Paul has said in interviews, you know, things like, um, you know, it's just a, a teenage song. You know, I've never driven to Mexico City, but it's just my imagination. And, you know, it, it, that's a really interesting point because, you know, Paul is still writing songs that are just imaginative story songs. And I think that's part of the reason why the album gets a bit of a critical drubbing because 1971, when the album comes out, is not a time for imaginative, uh, imaginative you know, made up no. songs. It's all to do with the confessional singer songwriter in 1971. Uh, uh, which is why George and John's albums land the way they land. Yes. But, you know, people aren't really in the in the vibe for a, a backseat of my car at that time. Like it, it's released as a single and it doesn't even make the charts. 
Yes, it, yeah, yes. I mean, it's it's the first song by the Beatles or any Beatle not to break the top 30 in the UK, which is yeah. kind of staggering. Suddenly, you, you know, to go from uh, having number one singles and, and another day it's a number two single and then suddenly, mm. bang, nothing, doesn't even chart. I mean, that must that must have been a... An odd one. A, a blow. I mean, that must have really been a, a, a shock uh, to him. But, um, yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, uh, lyrical sophistication to things like All Things Must Pass and, and uh, uh, Plastic Ono Band and Imagine and, and the, 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 but this is this is just a great song it's a pop song and it's a kind of Beach Boys feel to it as yeah. well and and that's the other thing they're, they're perhaps you never really see that come through much I think on, in, in McCartney's work that overt uh, Beach Boys uh yeah, influence. Yeah, I mean, nods, he talks. Yeah. He, yeah, he talks about you know the best song ever written is God Only Knows, and uh, he he was a big champion of the Beach Boys, but it doesn't filter through much. You know, you get back in the USSR, it's a kind of pastiche. Mm. But th- this this uh, and another song, Dear Boy, on this album, uh, where you have that vocal arrangement. Yeah, I'm uh, thinking of New has that vocal has arrangement little, yes, at the that end. Little yeah. breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so they're, they're actually, if you go onto YouTube, there is an instrumental kind of take or mix of Backseat of My Car. And if you listen to that instrumental, it's, uh, it, it sticks out just how arranged the song is because it's another one of those Paul McCartney songs. When you pull apart its constituents parts, you're like, this makes no sense that this yes. is a chorus and this is a verse and that this bit goes here and that bit goes there. And you know, you listen to the instrumental take and, you, you know, you're saying, well, here's a guy who doesn't read music and he's he's thinking of all of this and communicating all of this to the other players. Yeah. And he knows what the end result is. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great song. And again, that's a, that's one of the things that Danny Sidewell mentioned is that these these I, I assume a lot of these songs are sort of recorded in little bits and and then stitched together. But actually, he's saying most of them are just uh, the basic take is a, is a run through. He's never played this live although yeah. supposedly it was rehearsed for the 2002-2003 driving usa tour that would have been <laughs> sensational if, if if he had played that it would have been for you or me i wonder if there have been people in the audience going what is this i don't know uh, it, would, like, it would have been yeah i saw it would have been a bit tour. polarizing I, I i saw him on that tour i i i'm not sure if i could have contained myself if uh <laughs> that came played, out. if he had played that um, yeah, I mean, certainly Ram is one of those albums where if Paul said, listen, I'm doing a week of shows in the Albert Hall and I'm just going to play Ram from start to finish. I think yeah. people would go for that hook, line and sinker, yeah. um, but he doesn't want to do that. So that's fine. And, you know, to go back to the Twickenham sessions, it, it's just an interesting insight to see how these things rattle around his head. And then eventually he pulls them through his filter and he gets them down into a song like this. Um, but yeah, back to you in my car, one of the one of the, the classics of, of the Ram album. The next batch of songs that get recorded uh, don't end up on the album Road All Night, A Love For You and Hey Diddle. Um, Road All Night is a bit of a jam, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that, that that's just, I think, Paul and Denny and, and supposedly... It was just at the end of a day, there was a jam and they they did this absolutely sensational version of this song. Yeah. And uh, this, you know, what is what did that sound like? And no one was taping it. <laughs> oh. um, so so they, they, they kind of did it again. And, uh, you know, inevitably, uh, they, they both say, uh, you know, uh, it's not as good as the one that got away. Ain't that always the way? Uh, a love for you also takes some time to to come out. That comes out many years later. Uh, it comes out on a soundtrack some, to yeah. the to in laws. Um, 
bit of an enigma sound to it, yes. Weirdly. Um, and and then Hey Diddle, he loves that song. He does love that song. Uh, I think it, he just won't let it go. <laughs> I think it's just what it, recommend, what, what, what it represents. But yeah, Hey Diddle kind of represents that sitting in the farmyard, kids playing yeah. around. I'm sure that's the mental space yeah. it brings them back to. Yeah. The next Ram track that gets put down is Long Haired Lady, which is another one of these mini suites. And it's certainly the most prominent uh, Linda uh, appearance on the album. Yes, she's she's got a she's got a, a sort of a lead vocal, and you think is it, is it a kind of parody vocal? I mean, she she puts on a really weird accent. I, I don't it know sort where of sounds it like it's this some... kind of Broadway uh, West Side Story kind of you know. Uh, it is over, over dramatic kind of tongue. Yeah, it's, like it. and it's kind of somewhere between Brooklyn and Arizona. This this accent lies. Uh, it's it's you know it's very it's funny, but it's 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 uh, yeah, it's it's very funny. It is funny, and it you know it's another one of these instances on the album where, as we said, you know the the cover and the vibe makes you feel it's a you know big sort of laid back jam album. But yeah. you know the reality is this has got the New York Philharmonic overdubbed an arrangement on it, and it's quite well planned and thought out and well recorded yes and then a lot of the background vocals which are really quite sophisticated uh, uh, arranging is, is done in sound recorders in la and uh eric the norwegian uh <laughs> said um there's also something about long-haired lady i'd like to mention i remember playing the song back to paul in the studio and he rested his arms on my shoulder after hearing it and as i turned around and looked at his face tears were rolling down paul is a very very sensitive person listening to his vocal work with linda really got him into it and it was amazing um and it is one of those songs where you think he is just kind of uh pouring out his feelings for linda in a song uh, it, it's it's a very it's a very personal song in in a way that paul doesn't often yeah do well, like there's something yeah it is very personal and you know if you're paul mccartney in that situation you know and a song like long-haired uh, lady, he, he probably couldn't have imagined it three or four years earlier, creating a song like that about a person like that in a world like that. It's, it's, it's definitely not a Beatles song. No, and it's 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 a whole new thing for him. And as brilliant a songwriter as he is, there's something a little bit impersonal about some of the songs he was writing in the back end of the Beatles. You know, they're, they're songs just about you know well, devices but when, when yeah when when you, you you think of some of the songs you think oh well that was obviously about jane asher or that was about the relationship it's all quite oblique mm. it, it it's sort of passing references and it's kind of think you think oh that line must be about jane or that must reflect such and such a thing or that must uh you know he he's not somebody to write something uh, a song like julia yeah you know yeah as brilliant as something like say back in the ussr is it's not personal no uh, but no. Long-Haired Lady is personal. It is totally different to what he has done before. And it's yes. quite significant. Yes. And I mean, you think on the on the McCartney album, you have uh, the lovely Linda. But that's mm-hmm. a kind of throwaway, jokey, uh, uh, you know, he's not pouring his heart out there. Yeah. Here, I think you, 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 there's something, there's a connection. There's an emotional connection that I think my criticism of Paul sometimes, occasionally I've been known to, to criticize, is that, is that sometimes there is that kind of uh, wall. wall. Yeah. yeah. Um, but here, there, there is no wall. Um, so Long-Haired Lady, great track. Then some more stuff that doesn't make the album, Sunshine, Soup, uh, Sunshine Sometime, which uh, eventually gets reworked later, a few years later for the Rupert Bear soundtrack. And maybe someday we'll get a proper full-on Rupert Bear soundtrack. I know the world is clamoring out for that. 
Aren't you they? are. You I are. Am. Yeah. Uh, and then Oh Woman, Oh Why, which ends up as a B-side. That's a good jam. Oh I Woman, oh love this song. I absolutely <laughs> love this song. I, I discovered this. I, I remember buying the Another Day single. Not when it came out, you understand, but yeah, uh, yeah. finding it secondhand somewhere. And uh, the, the, the B-side is incredible. Uh, absolutely incredible. It, it doesn't fit anywhere. It, it's the complete... Yes, it doesn't sound it, like it, it should be on no. at all. No. Sounds like it, it should be on Plastic Onoband. I was going to say, it sounds yeah. like it should be on Plastic Onoband. It doesn't sound like a B-side. I mean, if you imagine if you bought Another Day yeah. and then you flipped it over, it's, it's, <laughs> yes, it's it nuts. Sound. It's yeah. absolutely nuts. And I think it's just Denny and Paul, and it's just this kind of really ballsy rock and roll. It's not like anything else, I think, uh, he's, he's really ever done and uh, I, I think I had to listen to it about 20 times before <laughs> I could work out the lyric and it's basically about uh, a guy you know his girlfriend shooting him uh, for, for some perceived infidelity I say perceived I'm uh, assuming the guy was innocent of all charges <laughs> but until guilty yes, until of guilty yeah it's a total it's a total jam uh, you know seems to be a straight life cut and uh, you know if, if it's a song uh, to anyone listening here that you're not familiar with, just dig it out. It's it's it's, it's, it's a great, great sound. You, yeah. you, it it might even be a slight precursor to Wings Wildlife in terms of its straightforwardness. You know, I think you could be right, but I won't hold that against it. <laughs> it's still a good song. So it's still like... a good song. It's still a good song. But you're right. Yeah, it's kind of you. You you could see it. Uh, you know, mumbo is. Yeah, is, it has. Yeah, it has a mumbo it's, it's vibe. That, it's that vibe. It's that vibe. Um, the next track to be recorded, though, is one that should be familiar to everybody. It's originally a song called. Uh, we're so sorry. Uh, so it's no surprise that that's Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. And this song does get released as a single in the US, does get to number one, not released as a single in the UK, no. uh, which I think is a pity. Um, and it's an unsurprising number one. This is ferociously Beatley in a way that, you know, we said Long Haired Lady isn't Beatley, but Uncle Albert, you're like, oh, yeah, there's Paul from the Beatles doing a song about boats and whatever. You think you think it's an unsurprising number one? I think the song is absolutely nuts. I mean, it's, a, it's <laughs> well, it, it's that, it's, it's that it's, McCartney it's, thing of, you know, the making the making the unexpected seem obvious uh, that we said before. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic song and it may be my favorite song on the album but you think yeah. is the, who who would listen to this and think this is a number one this has got number one single written all over it it's only paul but i would imagine in the context of you know hearing that song in 1971 if you are looking for some sort of beatles manna from heaven if you're looking for you know beetle paul doing a song that's kind of you know unexpected off the charts pop which it is it's kind of this unexpected pop yeah. that he excels at um, then you would have been like, yeah, that, that's that's I, that I can, would make totally sense I, in that context. The, the, but it is a crazy song. I absolutely agree with everything you say. I just think, <laughs> I, 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 as an album track, I think it works fantastically well. It's obviously, what do I know? I mean, I, I, oh, yeah. I uh, you know, would would not have been a successful A and R man in in, <laughs> uh, in in 1970. But um, it is. It's either like the Abbey Road medley, or it's a successor to Yellow Submarine, depending yeah. on where, where you stand about crazy sound effects and things. And, it has and again, all those parts in it, yes. This is, again, I assumed, you know, you record the little bits and then you stitch it together and you, you kind of get your razor blade out and slice up the tape and, and join it. But again, Danny Lane saying, sorry, Danny Sywell was saying. Oh, careful. <laughs> uh, Danny Sywell was saying, yeah, just, uh, we, we just recorded the, the thing all the way through. And then obviously all the, the sort of, layering on 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 top of that um 
but it's it's no it's it's absolutely great and it's a kind of template for what he would he would constantly come back to this type of uh uh mini suite yes and it was uh it was scored and arranged by george martin and was that credited at the time did people know that george martin's hand was in this because that adds to the whole beatles. beetle the beetle yeah the beetle fairy dust um yeah, I, I, I don't My know. My knowledge I, is that Paul, that, that George isn't mentioned on the original CD. He's certainly not mentioned as an arranger for this track. No, I, uh, I don't think so. I, I think um, he's playing down the Beatles connection and, for and now. Paul Paul uh, conducted the orchestra. I'm sure that was totally great. Well, apparently, <laughs> supposedly what happened was um, when the orchestra arrived and the players arrived, et cetera, et cetera, the string section, there was no conductor. And, uh, you know, they're just reading off a chart, but, but off a score, but, um, they said, okay, you go on, you go and conduct the orchestra. And he then proceeded to spend 45 minutes <laughs> getting the orchestra tuned. And, uh, you, you know, some of the guys in the studio, uh, in, in the control room were like, this is, what is he doing? What is he, what, you know, I said, but fair enough. He got them. And then there's something slightly Beatly about it. He kind of yeah. seemed to be able to get them to summon do it something up. and summon, summon, summon it up. And uh, John is on record as liking this song. Yes, he liked the hands across the water section for, for some it, of the other songs that he felt were a bit against yeah. him. He liked that one. He felt it was a bit conciliatory. Hands across the water. Is that about the Beatles? I think it could be. I don't think it is, though. I think it's. I think this is just classic Paul writing something. It's like, uh, the, the song reminds me of it in later careers, that track Mr. Bellamy, you know, I often think Mr. Bellamy and Uncle Albert are kind of related. It's this sort yeah. of just imaginative person song. You see, Mr. Bellamy, that's a song, that's a song I think I could easily live without. I uh, like I, Mr. Bellamy a lot. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, yeah, okay. And again, he's never played it live, but uh, was supposedly rehearsed for the 89 uh, to 90 world tour. Again, uh, uh, that would have been sensational if they could have pulled that off. I think it is a song, you know, uh, you, you, fantasy Paul McCartney set lists is, is a never ending topic, but uh, that is a song that I think if it, if it came out live, people would just go crazy. It's got, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can imagine a whole crowd doing hands across the water and, uh, and digging all of that. Well, particularly, um, particularly in America, it was a number one single. Yeah. And it's, it, but it's kind of forgotten. It kind of it doesn't always crop up on no, best it doesn't of cr- lists no, it or doesn't. compilation albums. No, it's 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 it is it is kind of sometimes passed over. And it did have a, a video made at the time. Um, but yeah, uh, Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey is a great song. Paul Beaver, the synthesizer uh, um, expert or the synthesizer, uh, what would you say? Pioneer. Pioneer. That's the word I'm reaching for. Uh, is on synthesizer as well. Um, in the background, while Paul is recording, uh, George and Patty Harrison arrive in New York City, and Paul decides to set up a uh, uh, just a social get together meeting for the start yes. of December because, you know, maybe. Uh, in the background, in November 1970, there's some legal preparation happening as well, isn't there? While all this is going on, while all this recording is is happening, Paul yes. is slowly talking to his people. Yes. So the the wagons are being circled, um, <laughs> and, and and the writs are being drawn up. So yes, in the in the background, uh, you know, Paul's legal team are working through this maze of legal agreements. How do we get Paul out? of this partnership so that he is kind of independent in a business um, sense. Um, 
so the you know the wheels uh, these the sort of legal things turn very very slowly. So yeah. uh, that's happening. George and Patty are in New York City, and the, there is a kind of social meeting. I don't think there's any uh, particular agenda here, other than, than than sort of getting together and and seeing, you know, uh, uh, testing the temperature of the waters. Yes. Um, George is probably the one that's been most vocal over the last sort of eight months about, you know, the Beatles could get back together again and we can do our own stuff and then we can come together. And he does that thing about, you know, a flower is very nice, but a garden is even nicer. And, uh, you know, it would be very selfish of the Beatles not to record. So it, it, it's it's in, in that uh, context, arrangements are being made that they will meet in a few weeks' time. Yeah, and in and around, you know, the these tracks being recorded, these final few tracks being recorded, there are papers issued in the High Court on November the 15th, seeking the dissolution of the Beatles partnership, which is just part of the legal process. There's still no writs out yet. No, well, what I would say is you, you issue the papers, but the only, unless someone actually went looking in the court office to find it, the only person who is aware of that is the person who has, who has filed the papers. Yes. So things don't go live until you actually serve yes, the writ nobody's paying any attention at this point i think these days people tend to these things get published online and people comb the online yes uh, the online um, papers to try and see what news stories might be hiding in the shadows it, but that it, wasn't the case at the time but people could have if they wanted you, to. you could and uh, what, what i would say at this stage is there's nothing inevitable at this stage this is yes. just this is maneuvering this is this is getting uh, themselves into negotiating positions and there is no inevitability that there will be a court case at this at this point there's still a few more songs to be recorded. Next up, Too Many People, the opening track of the album, uh, initially recorded on the 10th of November 1970 at Columbia Studios in New York. There's more overdubs in 71. Um, famously, uh, this is the song where, you know, as I said, it opens the album and John feels that this is super yeah. rude Soup, to him and Yoko. Uh, uh, this is a song that he, he he refers to on a number of occasions, you know, the, particularly that line, uh, too many people going underground. And he says, well, that was us, Yoko Ono and me. And you took your lucky break. That was considering we had a lucky break uh, to be with him. And, uh, you know, anybody listening to this song at the time is going to see that. Um, and supposedly, I have no verification for this, but um, supposedly the original line was, Yoko took your lucky break and broke it in two. I would like to think that wasn't true. He's not that um, direct. He's, he's not, he's not, he's certainly not going to record that and put it out. He might have sung that once on a demo or something, but. Um, and this has been conceded by Paul that he says, you know, yeah, uh, you know, in an interview in 84 for Playboy, uh, yeah. you know, because we read it for the articles, he talks about how, you know, there's a tiny reference to John, too many people preaching practices, I think's the line. That's just a little dig at John and Yoko, you know, uh, so he's, you know, he's, a, you know, he's, he admits it. Um, yeah, but what, what he says is there wasn't anything else that was about them. And then he goes, oh, well, there was that you took your lucky break and broke it in two. <laughs> so, and, 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 and then the backing vocals, don't do yeah. this, do that, do that, don't do that. You know, so uh, again, uh, uh, what's that opening line? Well, the, the, the opening line I always thought was piece of cake, but apparently it's piss off cake. And I uh, do. Is that something people say? Seems no, odd. That's that's not a line. That's, that's not, not a, that's yeah, not that's a, not a, a thing. thing. Um, but you know, yeah, he he again said in a Mojo article. Uh, you know, I felt John and Yoko were telling everybody what to do. I felt we didn't need to be told what to do. The whole tenor of the Beatles thing had been like to each his own freedom. Yeah. Suddenly, it was you should do this. It was just a bit 
finger wagging uh, and I was pissed off with it. So that one got to be a thing about them. It, it is a song that has made it to his live set lists in 2005 and in 2008, 2009. So he does play it. I've never heard it. I've never I been. Know. There's some YouTube never clips there, out there, but, but haven't yeah, been but in the room. Yeah, you know. Um, next tracks up, we have Little Woman Love. That doesn't make the album. Smile Away, which does make the album. Is it about the Beatles? John seems to think so. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it is really. I'm not sure. Uh, no, I, I, I don't know why. I think this is the point at which John was just seeing everything. Everywhere. Yeah, everything yeah, yeah. is about me. Everything is about me. Um, yeah, this is this 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 seems to me. This is even this is a song that even I can play the riff to this song. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's um, it's just a really basic, uh, really basic song. Um, the the weird thing uh, in, in reading this is that the engineer Eric the Norwegian said there are eight bass parts. I can't hear that. I can't, but I'll take his word for it. I mean, it's basically one big chunky riff. Yeah. Uh, maybe just the eight parts doubled up and quadrupled up. I I, I can't say. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again. It never struck me as eight bass tracks. You know, usually, no, I think it's know. just a kind of distortion there. And of course yeah. he does the one, two, three, four, the count in, which is... Is that the first time since I saw her standing there? There must be other. Well, that's about. Does Taxman count? That's not Paul, though. We don't. That's think not counting Paul. in on Taxman. Maybe it is Paul's first one, two, three, four. Yeah, it's very striking. If it is, uh, yes, uh, that's Smile Away. Uh, we're getting near the end of the main recording sessions for the album, so we're heading into the second half of November. They're still in New York. Next up is Heart of the Country. Um, where uh, Denny Sywell plays a dustbin lid, apparently. And this is one of those songs which, if you're not tuned in in 1970-71, you think this is more twee, homespun, Paul yeah. and Linda nonsense. Well, one, what the, one of the interesting things is this is recorded on the 16th of November, as is Smile Away. So it's yes. another another example of him doing this kind of vocal shredding performance on one song and then doing this very kind of charming little kind of... Uh, Acoustic point, you know, the part on the same day. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's those are probably the two most extreme um, uh, styles, contrast of styles on the album, and they're recorded on the same day. Um, yeah, either this is a kind of little cutesy folk song, or it's just as you say, uh, <laughs> a song about sheep and and farming, and uh, and given given that the whole big vibe in the late sixties was getting your head together in the country. Yeah. The, the, this, well, I, I don't understand why it's uh, because you were supposed to get your head together in the country with other men getting stoned, making songs that never ended, as opposed okay. to being with your wife and kids. That was right. the, that was that was the thing. That wasn't it's, cool. Domesticity <laughs> is not uh, is not cool. Yeah. Well, it's well. interesting. <laughs> John John Landau, who wrote the scathing review that we probably come on to, he said this is the album's <clears throat> excuse me, this is the album's lowest point. Mm. Um, but by 2013, they had changed their mind, which is what Rolling Stone does best. And they're saying this, <laughs> this is number 26 in its list of his best ever songs. Well, what people I don't think realized was that a song like Heart of the Country is um, it's a new style Paul McCartney song. And it's a, it's a it's a template that he uses a lot you know so hey diddle is a bit of the same template you know a, a track that he records next little lamb dragonfly that doesn't appear to red rose speedway is 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 kind of cut from the same cloth and you know you skip forward 50 years to the end of mccartney three where he sticks you know where winter comes at the end of that album yeah and that's 
at that point, you hear that album going, oh, it's one of Paul's I'm on the farm songs. I'm really happy. Well, yeah, I, I, no, I, I like I like Heart of the Country. Uh, when winter comes, it seems to me he's no, he's no longer on the farm digging ditches, I don't think. <laughs> must um, tell someone to dig a ditch. Is probably yeah, what I must get somebody, somebody to dig a ditch. But, but yeah, Heart, I, I like Heart of the Country. And it, it always struck me that this is the song that Lennon is referencing in How Do You Sleep? Yeah. Because he actually sings, I want a horse, I want a sheep, I want to get me a good night's sleep. And Lennon is going, how do you sleep at night? You know, I I just thought that was, but I think I'm the only person in the world that thinks that. I hadn't thought of that myself, but that could be true. I mean, it probably would have been a, the attitude of the song might have gotten up McCartney's nose. It might have seemed smug. It might have seemed... Up you John's know, nose. Up John's nose, yes. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it, as I said, it didn't land with, well with a lot of people at the time who kind of thought it was trite, uh, a bit low-key and not really, really good the, enough. Yeah. The other thing is it was rehearsed for Unplugged. Yeah. And you think it would be a natural fit for Perfect. Unplugged. But why did he drop that? Was he just, was Paul self-conscious about that? Was he sort of thinking, you know, maybe even even after all these years, it's a little bit, well, Unplugged was pulling a lot of songs from, you know, McCartney and that at the time. Mm. So, uh, you know, maybe he didn't want to overwhelm people with stuff that wasn't, you know, a top tier hit, yeah. you know. Yeah. So he was just getting the balance right because he does, you know, I always remember Unplugged as the, the song that kind of rehabilitates tracks like Every Night and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe there was only so many of those songs he could put on that track listing. But he, he, he it's a song he's hugely attracted to because uh, it got re-recorded in 2013. Um, with Mark Ronson uh, for a commercial voiced by Elvis Costello <laughs> for Linda <laughs> McCartney Foods. Yeah. That's wow. a good mix. I mean, that's well, it feels I, like I, somebody spun some wheels there. We'll have I, Elvis Costello doing an ad yeah, for Linda McCartney with Mark. I, I think what I what I like about this song is this is this is his manifesto. Yes. This is as much a manifesto song as John's part to the people or imagine or any of those kind of sloganeering things that John is coming out with in 70, 71, 72. This is, this is Paul's personal manifesto. This is who I am. This is where I am. And this is what I'm doing. And, and yeah, I, I, I think it's, again, it's slightly different feel to anything else on ramp, but um, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. But I think that's maybe why it lasts over the years, because it's a manifesto. And you can see as the decades went by how he kept that manifesto, how he evolved into a vegetarian, how he yep. did plug into the natural world. Like we're, we're joking a little bit. He doesn't spend much time on Mull of Kintyre now, but he's still a man who rides his horses and yep. takes yep. takes takes uh, takes a lot of comfort in the, the space of nature. So I think that makes the song once once you see it through 50 years of how he's lived his life. Yeah, it feels much more sincere and much more uh, honest and truthful. As we said, the other song he records at that time is uh, Little Lamb Dragonfly, which doesn't turn up until a Red Rose Speedway, which we've, we've got a Red Rose Speedway episode where we talk about it. And I Lie Around, which um, it gets used as a B-side, but ends up on the expanded uh, Red Rose Speedway. Yeah, it's a it's a weird song. <laughs> I lie around, but this this this, this apart from uh, Smile Away, uh, 16th November was obviously the, you know, Country Day uh, yes. in, in the studio. You <laughs> know, you, 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 you've, you've kind of got Heart of the Country, Little Lamb Dragon, or I Lie Around. They all have that that kind of bucolic, uh, laid-back uh, vibe. So, yeah, he's in, a, he's in a good place. So he's got the guts of the album done, although they're all basic raw tracks, no overdubs. The You know, he hasn't chosen a track selection. So he's 
deserved and earned the right to kick back and relax. And what more relaxing thing to do when you're in New York City is to meet up with your old bandmate, George Harrison. Your old buddy. Your old, old buddy, your old mucker George, to kick back, yeah. relax, and everything goes great. No, it doesn't. Do we but know exactly we what happens? We know it goes horrifically wrong. We know it does not go well. Yes. Um, so this this is this is ostensibly it's a social meeting. Although again, it's quite telling that the arrangement is made several weeks before. It's not a kind of you know, oh, I'm in time. Yeah, oh, you, what are you doing this afternoon? Why don't you drop by the studio and play some guitar on my new album? Or you know, <laughs> yes. you would think that would be. Um, Rather, it, it, it seems to have been set up more like a summit meeting, uh, although ostensibly it's just a, a, a social chat. But yeah, the, the Keith Badman book, uh, The Beatles After the Breakup, it just simply says it does not go well and Paul determines to press on with legal action. So whatever happens, uh, whatever the kind of vibe is, it's not good and there's there are no uh, sort of bridges being mended here. Well, that's the thing to keep in mind. So Paul has been busy recording this album for, you know, four to five weeks. Um, he has had some lawyers getting the basic paperwork drawn up in the courts in London for the dissolution of the Beatles partnership. Now he has to, you know, try and confront what's going to happen next and talking to George as part of that. And we have to assume uh, to some degree that that's what Paul and George are talking about. And yes. Paul may or may not directly say, I have people in London ready to yeah. go to work on my behalf. Yes. What 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 seems to happen next is that uh, uh, the, the sessions come to an end and uh, Paul and Linda and the family go back to Scotland. And um, Paul has talked about that period and said that uh, this is the point at which he decides or realises the decision has to be made to press ahead with the, the, the legal action to actually serve these writs. And he recounts... Um, John Eastman, Linda's brother, coming up to visit him in Scotland and they're kind of out for a walk and they're standing on a hill and, and John Eastman is saying, you don't have any option here. We've we've looked at all of the ways we can proceed. The only way to proceed is to basically sue uh, the other three Beatles. And you wonder, it, did the combination of John Eastman saying that and a bad meeting with George, uh, you know, there, there there's obviously no sign of an olive branch or no way back uh you would you would think coming out of that meeting with george and this is it standing on a hill in scotland he resigns himself to the fact that uh yeah we're gonna have to sue yes and so with uh ram in the can so to speak he's back in scotland he's looking off into the the distance metaphorically and literally and he he kind of just decides to flick the switch which starts the process of blowing it all up and that's where we're going to leave it, folks. Um, on a cliffhanger. On a cliffhanger. Literal cliffhanger. On <laughs> what a hill will happen hanger. next? What will happen next? You won't believe what happens next, everyone. Um, and that takes the end of 1970. Um, what do you think happens next, folks? <laughs> Tune in next week to the very exciting episode of Rampart 2 on Nothing Is Real. Uh, look, let's talk about this in all the usual places. We're on Twitter, at BeatlesPod. Uh, we've got the Nothing Is Real Facebook group asked to join. Links to everything is on our website, nothingisrealpod.com, where you can get playlists to go with old episodes. You can get YouTube playlists. We've got a YouTube channel you can subscribe to. I can't believe I'm of an age where I say like and subscribe. But you can go on to YouTube <laughs> and like and subscribe the Nothing Is Real YouTube channel. 
and uh, you know we're happy to uh, engage uh, wherever wherever uh, wherever we can be online. Um, but yeah, next week we will continue the story of Ram. But for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft, and this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.